Bibles tonight to 1 Timothy. And if you need a Bible, just lift up your hand nice and high, and the ushers will bring you a Bible so that you can follow along with us in our Bible study tonight. So 1 Timothy, and we're in chapter 2. In chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul began his letter to this young pastor by reiterating to him a charge or a command that he had given him many years previously. And that was to hold up and also anchor down the doctrine of the Christian faith. To beware of those that would seek to modify it or belittle it or change it in any way to make it something that it isn't, thereby corrupting the pure message of the gospel. And last week, as Paul talked to Timothy about the doctrine of the church, he gave him that same charge again. He said, Timothy, this charge I commit unto you to hold faith and a pure conscience. And don't let those things be taken away by any means. So important are they. And so we talked about the church and its doctrine in chapter 1. As we cross into chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is going to write to Timothy about the church and its disciplines. And so he begins in verse 1, talking to Timothy about prayer. He says, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Paul is going to spend the first seven verses of this chapter talking about this all-important subject of prayer or our communication, our lifeline, our connection to heaven. And he's going to answer four questions as we go through this text. He doesn't tell us what the questions are. He just gives us the answers. So it's kind of like Jeopardy. We get to figure out what the questions are and then see the answer. And the first question that Paul answers in verse 1 there is just very simply, what is prayer? And he uses four words to define it. He says, I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications. Secondly, prayers. Thirdly, intercessions. And fourthly, giving of thanks be made for all men. The word supplication very simply means a request or a petition. Paul defined it in speaking to the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, by saying, In everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God. And so very simply, supplications is just simply letting God know the petitions and the requests that you have that are on your heart. That's supplication. Then he goes on from supplication and he talks about prayer. Now, prayer is a word that means prayer. And it speaks of speech or conversation, just our communication with God in heaven. And it has two different uses, this word prayer in the New Testament. It is used as a verb, which is an action, something that we do. 
But this word prayer is also used sometimes as a noun. And that speaks of a place or a time. And I believe that that's an important part of prayer is that it isn't just something that we do haphazardly or, uh, you know, when it comes up or when we have a moment, but that there be a part of our Christian discipline. That there's a regular time that we've set apart in our day to seek the Lord. Yes, it should be ongoing. Paul wrote and he said to the Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. And we know that we need the Lord, not just in the morning and in the evening, but moment by moment. But yet there should be a place and a time that we've set aside in our schedule where there's nothing else going on but just our communication, the time that we have with the Lord. And so he encourages prayer. Then he says intercession. Intercession means the requests and the petitions that we have for others. Things that we're standing in the gap for. That we're holding up before the Lord and interceding, pleading before God for someone else's cause. No matter what it is or who it is, it's just interceding on someone else's behalf, praying for them. And then finally, he says, giving of thanks. And very simply, that just means thankful language. It's so important that we see over and over again in the scriptures the place of thanksgiving, that it's important to God that we give thanks. Even when we're in times of difficulty, times of trial, times of uncertainty, when we're suffering and there's things happening that are unpleasant to us physically or spiritually or mentally, that we maintain an attitude of thanksgiving. That's important to God and it's important for us. And so Paul tells us, this is what prayer is. It's making your petitions and requests known to God. It's setting aside time and discipline to talk to the Lord, as well as constant communication between heaven and earth, between you and God. It's interceding and praying for others, holding up your brothers and sisters in Christ, and even situations and circumstances in the world before the Lord, interceding. And it's giving thanks in everything that this is important. So Paul tells us this is what prayer is. It's communicating with heaven. Then he goes on to answer the second question, which is, okay, Paul, what do we pray for? And so at the end of verse 1, you'll notice there, he says that these things should be made, first of all, for all men. The prayer should be made for all men, for everyone. Second of all, if you look in verse 2, he says, for kings. And for all that are in authority. So the second point of prayer is for the governing authorities. Those that have positions of responsibility in human government or in in our workplaces. People that are in places of responsibility. That they should be a part of who we're praying for. They're included under the banner of all men. That he said at the end of verse 1. And then he says this there after that. He says that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. That there would be a circumstance culturally that is conducive to the spread of the gospel and for Christians to live at peace. That that should be something that we pray for. And then he qualifies that by saying in verse 3, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who will have all all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. 
So essentially, what Paul is telling us that we're to pray for is that all people would come to a place of faith in Jesus Christ unto salvation. That that is the will and the heart of God, is that all men should be saved. And so therefore, we should pray for all men that they would be saved. And that secondly, there would be a circumstance or a cultural situation in society that is conducive to the Christian life and the spread of the Christian gospel. And so we're to pray for those things, and especially for our leaders, those people that are in a place of political influence. Now, it's important for us as Christians to pray for the politicians that make policies and laws in our country. We understand that. We know that that's important for us to pray for President Obama. Whether we agree with him or like him or not, we should be praying for him. We should be praying for the men and women in the Congress and in the Senate and in the House that make laws and that are lobbied constantly and that have a a say in the direction, in the way things go in this country. We should be praying for them. That's an important thing for us to do. We have to do that. There are many people that invest a lot of time and a lot of energy into political things. And I believe that's not a bad thing, that it's important for us to be abreast of issues and to know what's going on and to play a part and especially to vote and to participate in the political process and to realize the price that was paid for us to have those privileges and that freedom. And it's a waste for us to not be involved in that kind of thing. And that's good. But I also believe that what happens many times is that when a person, especially a Christian, becomes over-involved in politics and becomes oversaturated and over-consumed, there's a very real tendency to forget, first of all, that God is sovereign over the affairs of men. That ultimately, the throne that we bow down to is not the White House or the Capitol building but that the throne that we give an account to and that we have privilege to go to is the throne of God in the heavens. And what Paul is encouraging us to do here is to circumvent the powers that be. In other words, we have the right and the authority to go past the lobby of Washington and past the political scene that makes laws and policies and we can go right to the throne of God that controls all of those things and we have a greater influence at that throne than we will ever have in our lobby or our influence in an earthly throne in the political spectrum of man and that's what Paul is 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 encouraging us to do and and, and here's what happens when when a person becomes too focused on politics is that they forget God's sovereignty, first of all. But second of all, there's a very real danger of becoming angry with people. Of seeing someone that's a different political persuasion than we are and and looking down on them in our heart or despising them inwardly or even secretly, subconsciously maybe wishing damnation upon that person, condemning them in ignorance because they don't see things the way that we do. That's not the heart of God. See, what does God say there in verse 4? It says that he would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
regardless of their political persuasion and the way that they see the world working, that God wants all men saved. And we ought to beware because as Christians, we're to be little Christ, lights in the world, and we're to be lovers of all men. The problem with the world today is not the political policies of men. The problem in the world today is the problem of sin that affects all men. That's the problem. If you take sin out of the heart of man, both a democratic or liberal ideology or a Republican conservative ideology will work. If there's no sin in the world, either one of those two platforms will work because man will ultimately be concerned with, you know, the right thing, doing the right thing, and there will be an absence of corruption within those systems. But when you put sin in man, which you don't have to put it in, it's already there, neither one of those two systems can ultimately work. Because corruption is going to get the better of either one of those systems ultimately. It's inevitable. And what the Bible teaches us is that until Jesus Christ comes, there will be no political solution to the problems that are on planet Earth. Because the problem isn't politics. The problem is sin in the heart of men. And see, Jesus Christ didn't come to propagate a political platform. He came to take away sin. And so he went to the root of the problem, and he dealt with it there. And Paul is saying, talk to him about it. Do we vote? Yes. We make decisions. We pray. We do what God leads us to do. But ultimately, we understand that God is sovereign. God loves all men and wants all men to come to a knowledge of the truth. And that the problem with the world is sin. That's the problem. And that Jesus Christ came to die for sin. And so Paul tells us that we're to pray for these things. Well, who do we pray to? Notice in verse 5 what he says there. He says, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ and lie not a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity or truth, faith and truth. He says that we are to pray. Our prayers are to be directed to God only. The Bible teaches us that we are not to pray to any entity other than to God himself. The Bible is very clear about that. Sometimes I talk to people and they'll mention to me things like, well, I was talking to my spirit guide or my deceased aunt or grandmother or mother, I believe is helping me, looking out for me, is, is leading me. Now, I understand the sentiment that's behind that. But the Bible teaches very clearly that there is no possible way for any entity of someone who has passed already to cross over and give information or instruction to someone in this life. You recall from Luke chapter 16 when Jesus spoke of the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus said there is a great gulf fix so that they that are here cannot pass from they to them that are there, nor vice versa. It doesn't work like that. 
And prayer is to be directed only to God in the scripture. The Bible is very clear that that is where we are to pray. And I sometimes fear a little bit for someone who talks about their spirit guide. Because the Bible talks about a deception that can come from the enemy in those types of things, and they can easily cross into the occult. Our safety, our shepherd, is the Lord. And we have a direct access line to him 24-7, and the Bible says that he knows the number of hairs that are on our head. Not one of them falls to the ground without him knowing. The Bible says, He that keepeth you will neither slumber or sleep. The Bible says that no weapon that is formed against you will prosper. The Bible says over and over again that he keeps you. He keeps us. He knows us. And so there's nowhere else for us to go but to God, and we have access to God. And so we're to pray to God. However, the Bible also teaches that we come to God through the person of Jesus Christ. There is one God, and he says, and one mediator between God and men, that is the man, Christ Jesus. We come to God through Christ. In John chapter 10, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, I am the door. And what he meant is that he was the door whereby man can enter into a relationship with God, that they must come through Jesus Christ. In John chapter 14, verse 6, when Jesus had that famous conversation with Philip, just days before going to the cross, He said to the Philip, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And and then he said this. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. That if we're going to go to Christ, I mean, go to the Father, we come through Christ. And then just a little bit later in the same conversation, Jesus said these words in John chapter 16, verses 23 and 24. Jesus said, and in that day, you shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Hitherto, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you shall receive that your joy may be full. And so the Bible teaches us that we have access to God, but that we ask in Jesus' name. We come to God through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul means when he says that there is one mediator between God and men, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. When Job was going through his afflictions, his trials and the difficulties where he literally lost everything, a a wealth that you and I couldn't even begin to fathom, you know, was stripped from him, literally, from the hand of the devil. And... Then his body was afflicted with sores, and he gets into this despair, as any of us would if we were in a situation that that, that was similar to the one that he was in. And his friends come, and they try to comfort him, but they end up only discouraging him more, and and, and he falls into this pit of self-pity as he's going on about how he doesn't deserve the things that he's going through, and, you know, how it's unfair, and how God is, is, you know, far off and and literally he goes through all of the kind of thought patterns that we go through when we have difficult times and trials and it's incredible to read and see 
But about halfway through the, the, the you know, talk back between Job and his friends, Job finally bursts out and he says these words. He says, oh, that there were a daysman, someone that could plead my cause before God, someone that could stand in the gap and lay his hand upon us both. That's exactly what Paul is telling us we have in the person of Jesus Christ, the mediator. The daysman who pleads our cause before God, who puts his hand upon us and upon God and reunites us, brings us into fellowship and favor with the Father. And so he teaches us we pray to God and we come through Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things, he tells us. And then finally, he finishes with the posture of prayer there in verse 8. He says, I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere so the place of prayer someone will ask and say well what's the proper place to pray the proper place is where you are right now if the bible says pray without ceasing then that qualifies the place that we are in at any moment in any time and so the acceptable place of prayer is anywhere there isn't a special more sacred place that god hears us a little better there isn't a room that's quieter that, you know, where, where, where God will hear us more readily. No matter where we are, at any time, in any circumstance, we are to pray, to be in prayer. So the place of prayer is universal. You can pray wherever you are in whatever situation. You can pray in the car. Don't close your eyes. <laughs> you can pray while you walk. You can pray while you work. I, I, I so love how the Lord will meet with me in just the most unexpected ways at the most unexpected times. Just mowing the lawn and just watching what I'm doing and, and the Lord will just make his presence so, so manifest to me in just a single moment and I'll just begin to pray and talk to the Lord and thank him. Crouching down in an aisle at Home Depot, picking out lag bolts or something and just the most unexpected situation and the Lord just will just come and just draw near and you sense that his spirit is, is present and you just begin to pray. You know, I mean, I'm not talking about you drop to your knees, lift your hands and, oh, thank you, Jesus, you know. But, but you just, in your heart, you just begin to converse and commune with God wherever you are. Irrelevant. The place doesn't matter. You say, well, what about the posture? Do I have to be on my knees or, you know, on the floor with my face to the ground prostrate? Look at what he says there at the end of the, of the verse. He says, I will that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. The posture that he speaks of is twofold. First of all, it speaks of the posture of our heart. When he says without wrath and doubting, it's most likely a reference to an Old Testament idiom from the Psalms where the psalmist declared and said, give us clean hands and a pure heart. And it speaks to us about the attitude or the condition of our heart when we come to God, that we're to come in sincerity, we're to come in faith, we're to come believing. We're not to be motivated by wrath and we're not to be polluted by doubt. But we're to just come with the purest heart that we can in sincerity before the Lord. Not trying to hide sin or justify it. But laying all that we are open and plain and bare before him. That's the posture of our heart. But he also encourages us to use the posture of our physical frame. He says lifting up holy hands. 
Now, does that mean that we can't pray unless our hands are lifted to heaven? Or we could say unless we're on our knees? Or unless our face is to the ground? No, of course not. We read in the Bible and we see people praying in every different situation. The servant of Elijah who prayed, I'm sorry, the servant of Abraham who prayed on his journey while he was walking, moving along with his eyes open. And it tells us that it wasn't even with his mouth that he spoke the things in his heart silently. And God heard and answered the prayer that was offered that way. And you can pray no matter what position that you're in. But I find that for me, there are times when it helps me to engage in prayer, not just mentally and not just verbally, but sometimes even physically. Not because it's required by God for him to hear me or because it gives me more favor. That's not the point. But sometimes because of the tendency my mind has to wander. I don't know if you're like me. Or if like me, sometimes you try to pray while you're laying down and you end up resting in the Lord. (laughs) Instead of praying in the spirit, you know. And so sometimes as the Spirit leads to engage physically in the act of prayer is acceptable and well-pleasing to God. I remember the first time I went to a Protestant church as a teenager. I was not a saved person and I was brought up in a very stoic and cold congregation, drugged there from my parents, you know. And I remember the first time I walked into a Protestant congregation and as the music began to go forth, and the people began to sing, I started to see people lift up their hands. And my immediate reaction was, oh my goodness, what are they doing? Don't they know that other people are watching? Why are they doing that? You know, and it just, it just kind of weirded me out a little bit to see people doing that, you know. And, 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 you know, it, it was a little weird. And then I got saved, and I had the question, do I have to be one of those people? that raise my hand when they sing because that it, I, and I tried it. I remember the first time and I was kind of like, okay, do I, do I have my fingers open together? Do I do one of the, is it, is it like this or is it, I'm receiving? And, and it was like this. And all of a sudden my hands went up in the air and, and I couldn't even concentrate on the Lord anymore because I was too worried about the way my hands looked, you know. And so I realized, you know what, I don't have to raise my, I, I'm engaging more, you know. But then, then what happened is, is as I grew in the Lord, I became so filled with, with, with appreciation that I, I wanted to raise my hands. And so then I went through the, you know, the, the close to the body inward raise, you know, that nobody can see. Kind of like, you know, the tight end, going to catch a pass raise, you know, and, and then, you know, and, and whatever. And, and, and you know, and then, and then you kind of, you grow and you get to a point where I don't, I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't, I, Lord, and, and I don't care what my hands look like. Lord, I, I want to lift my hands to you. But see, it's not something that's required, but be led of the Lord and understand that it is a biblical thing to worship God with our bodies. To let our physical appearance, not appearance, but our physical, uh, you know, whatever, be engaged in the act of prayer or in worship. But be led of the Spirit. It isn't a required thing. But let the Lord lead you. So the posture is that we come with a pure heart. And that we engage fully, body, soul, and spirit, into the act of worship, communion, and prayer to our Lord. And it's the exhortation that Paul gives to them here in these first eight verses. I believe 
that the biggest problem that we have with prayer is that because we're on earth and because we don't see things with our eyes spiritually, the result of that is that we don't fully understand how prayer works. And we don't see the immediate result of the prayer. And therefore, we don't pray. We don't understand it. We don't see the results, what's happening, and so we don't pray. But this I can tell you, is that every person that has been mightily used of God, whether it's missionaries or preachers or just Christians that love the Lord and just walked with him intimately, without fail, at the end of their life, when people ask them the question, what would you do differently or what do you regret about your life? Each and every one of them say the same thing. They say, if I could go back and do it again, I would have prayed more. I would have spent more time exercising the right I had to be in communication and communion with my Father that's in heaven. I believe that the biggest regret that you and I will have when we get to heaven, one of the biggest regrets for me at least, will be not capitalizing on the privilege we have to be before the throne of God night and day, to just be in his presence without ceasing. It's interesting to consider how often Jesus, when he was on earth, resorted alone and got into a place of prayer by himself. If the Son of God knew that he needed to be connected to his Father in order to have an effective life on earth, how do we think that we're going to live an effective life if we are prayerless people? Think of the privilege that we have. And so Paul says, I exhort, therefore, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. I will that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. It's our privilege. Saints, engage in it. Become people of prayer. Develop your conversation with God. And so Paul talks to them about prayer. He moves on, and now he talks to them about the women as we break into verse 9. Now, if you came in here tonight, and you were cold, and you said, it's a little chilly in here, don't worry, it's about to heat up. (laughs) He says in verse 9, In like manner also that women adorn themselves, that is, dress, themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety not with broided hair or braided hair or gold or pearls or costly array but which becometh women professing godliness with good works the way a person dresses often is intended to make a statement about that person a person will dress with the statement in mind of saying, communicating that they are wealthy. Some people will dress to make the statement that they are with it. They're they're into the current styles and they know what's going on or they know how to put themselves together. You know, they're with it. Some people make the statement that they're clueless. That's like me. You know, I just, it's not my gift, you know, to, to understand that kind of thing. Some people make the statement that they're creative or artistic, you know, with the way that they dress, you know. And some people make the statement with their dress that they are available. That that's the statement that they make. And what Paul is saying to these people, to these women here in Thessalonica and to us, is to the women to beware of the statement that you are making by the way you dress, even if it's unintentional. 
The word that he uses there in verse 9, he says, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves. The word adorn there in the Greek language is the word kosmaim, and it's where we get the English word cosmo, and what it means is to beautify. And so he's not saying that women, you're to wear a burqa and a veil, you know, and, and that you're to look hideous. No, he says it's okay to look beautiful. He's not saying that you shouldn't look beautiful. But sometimes there can be a fine line between beautiful and seductive. And so he says, adorn yourselves. It's okay to look beautiful. Uh, What does J. Vernon McGee say? He says, if the barn needs paint, paint it. You know. I didn't do his voice very well, you know, but if you've heard J. Vernon McGee, you can just imagine him saying that. But he says, it's okay to beautify yourselves, but beautify yourselves, he uses the word modestly there. And the word modest, the the, the definition of the word is with discreetness or with wisdom is a better word. Beautify yourselves with wisdom. Now, consider that. Think about it. What does wisdom, what is wisdom? Wisdom is knowing what to do with what you already know. And so Paul is assuming, inferring that they know something. What do they know? What does every woman know? Every woman knows that she has the power to be a distraction or a seduction, a seducting agent to a man, a distraction. And so he's saying dress understanding that you have the potential to stumble your brothers or to be an offense to your husband or to be a disrespect to the Lord. And so he's saying It isn't a matter of covering yourselves prudently. It's a matter of beautifying yourselves modestly. And he gives them that instruction. He says that that, that this is important uh, that you do that. Now, he goes on to say, with shamefacedness. Now, that's that's not a good translation. The word that Paul employs there for that, it's only used twice in the New Testament. And the other time that it's used, it's translated reverence. That's that's what it means. It means just simply respect. And it speaks of just having respect. Women, respect for your husbands, respect for the men that may be distracted by your appearance, and respect for God, understanding that you're in the house of God, in the presence of God, and so therefore give honor and respect to God through the way that you appear. And then he says, and sobriety, not with braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly array, but that which becometh women professing godliness with good works. In other words, what he's saying is that let your beauty, the true beauty that you possess women, let it come from what's inside and not what is seen on the outside. There's nothing more beautiful than a woman who emanates and is saturated with Jesus Christ. Nothing more beautiful than that. Because that's a beauty that is lasting. Whether you're a male or a female here in this place tonight, if the way you look outwardly is for you a source of satisfaction, in other words, you like the fact that you are hot stuff, you know, and you like to work it a little bit, you know, the way that you dress or the way that you conduct yourself or the way that you, you know, cosmify or whatever it is that you do, you know, If that's a source of satisfaction for you to know that people are looking at you and they are noticing your attractiveness, let me warn you, you're on a slippery slope. 
Because once you become over-consumed with the outward appearance, that becomes a breeding ground for self-love and conceit. You can't remain neutral in that place. It always grows into something more. And the automatic byproduct of that is that you begin to look down on others. Because if you're judging everything by looks and outward appearance, then you look good. They must not look so good. And so you can't continue down that road without eventually, or even all the time, looking down on someone else. Because you're using that as a feeding ground. You're feeding off of that attention that you get, the attraction that you have. And it's a slippery slope. And here's why. Because ultimately, you're going to lose that battle. What do they say? They say beauty is skin deep, but ugly goes clear to the bone, right? (laughs) And eventually, no matter how beautiful you are or how nice your figure is or how flat your abs are or how nice your shape is or whatever else or how good your clothes are, eventually that's not going to work anymore. And then you're going to have to up the ante to maintain it. And now you've got other problems. And we see this happening in our society, people getting into eating disorders or taking drugs in order to maintain or people spending hours in the gym to the peril of their health for the sake of maintaining attractiveness. People getting surgery and plastic surgery and Botox and, you know, all of these things to try to maintain something that you can't hold on to. Imagine would be for one minute that Madonna gets saved. She, what is she, 80? You know? if madonna gets saved and the rapture happens more of her is going to be left behind than goes in the rapture you know the bible says that the glory of man is like the flower of the field that it soon perishes and think about it After the dandelion dies, what's left over? Just a weed, right? That's all that's left. And our bodies, our frame, our attractiveness, if God's blessed you with it, then enjoy it for that season, but don't let that be the source of your satisfaction because ultimately it cannot satisfy you. However, the beauty that comes from fellowshipping with God, loving God, and being beautified in your soul by your fellowship with Jesus Christ, that is eternally satisfying and eternally beautifying. And so Paul isn't just writing this for the men's sake. Women dress modestly to respect the men and not to stumble them, but rather he's writing it also for the woman's sake. Don't go down that path because ultimately it's a slippery slope. He moves on from their appearance and he begins talking about their position. This is where it starts to get really hot in here. In verse 11, he says, Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Let's do chapter 3 next week. Let's close in prayer. No. See, it's not always an easy job, you know. The women's liberation movement has done some great things for women. But it has also done considerable damage. It's placed an incredible stigma upon being a mother. 
It's not good enough to be a mom. If you want to be a stay-at-home mom and you want to raise your kids and be a homemaker, then a stigma is placed upon you of, oh, you're just a stay-at-home mom. You know, you're, you're worthless. You're, you're not a real woman is the stigma that's attached to a woman that has that kind of a thing. I thank God for my stay-at-home mom. I thank God for the moms in this church that want to stay home and raise their kids. Now, if you want to, you know, be, have a career or you have to have a career or you have a career, that's okay. That's your liberty. That's fine. But it ought not to be that a stigma be placed upon a woman who stays home and raises her family that she be called old-fashioned or in some way she's looked down upon as something that's less than what she should be or could be. And so many women have been ripped off by that lie that unless you go and make something of yourself that you don't measure up, that's a lie from the enemy. You're precious in God's sight. That's what he has designed. That's what he's given to you to be. Now, it is also a matter of historical fact that everywhere the gospel has gone, the place of women in that society has been elevated from what it was before the gospel got there. Oh, Paul was sexist. He was a chauvinist. The Bible is chauvinist. God is sexist, they'll say. Listen, no, God is not chauvinist. Paul is not sexist. The Bible does not discriminate against women as such as you say. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite. Paul wrote and he said, there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond or free, male or female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. And the gospel, everywhere it has gone, has elevated the character and the place of a woman from that of an object to that of the perfect completion of God's expression of himself through man. The male and the female, the two becoming one, made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And that is the heart of God towards a woman. woman. Also true for those that would say that the Bible is sexist or that Paul is unfair or chauvinistic, Before you say that, consider for a moment the place that women played within Paul's ministry. Whether it was Lydia who became the pillar and the foundation of the church, the first church in Europe in the city of Philippi. Or whether it was all of the women that ministered unto him, Phoebe and Chloe and Clement and Mary. And, you know, all of the others, the deaconesses that held positions within the church that that were a vital and vibrant part of what Paul did and produced and were essential in what God did. Think of what God has done throughout the ages with the woman in the Bible. You look at how God has changed the shape of nations. Through people like Abigail and Ruth and Esther and Deborah, you know, and and, and all of them that, that go through, God loves the person of the woman. You look at the ministry of Jesus and how many women flocked to be around his side. And their husbands didn't even mind. They weren't jealous. Because why? Because the way that Jesus treated them was with dignity, with honor, and with respect. The heart of God towards the woman is perfectly pure. Not in any way is she less. To say that a woman is less than a man or that she in some way is subservient to him would be equal to say that Jesus is less than God. Because in the same way that it says that the father submits him, I'm sorry, the son submits himself to the will of the father, so in God's order is the woman to be in subjection to her husband in God's order. But she's not less 
It's just the order that God has said. So God's heart towards women is perfectly pure. However, he does say that she is not to hold the position of a pastor of a church or of a spiritual leader over a congregation or over a flock. And there's a very specific reason why. He tells us in verse 13, he says this. He says, for Adam was first formed and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. He reaches way back into history, and what he tells us is that the reason why God has not ordained that a woman should be in a place of spiritual oversight over a church is not because she's incompetent. In many cases, it's the opposite. It's not because she's unqualified or not smart enough or whatever the case might be or not strong enough. It's none of those reasons. He says the reason is very specific, and it goes all the way back to creation and the way that God made the woman. And that is this, is that because of her spiritual sensitivity, and listen, it is true that women are more spiritually sensitive than we are as men. That's gospel fact. I mean, you have the 12 apostles that walked with Jesus for three and a half years, and he told them outright, the son of man is going to suffer, and he's going to die, and he's going to rise. And they were like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. But yet a woman, one of the Marys, I don't know which one, you know, it says that she came and she broke the ointment box and she poured it upon his head and it went down to his feet and she began to wipe his feet. And and when Judas began to rebuke her, Jesus justified her with these words. He said, she has done this beforehand for my burial. Now, you don't anoint a body beforehand for the burial. And the testimony that Jesus was making concerning that woman is that she understood that he would rise again. The men didn't get it. Huh? She understood. She knew what was going on. Women are more spiritually in tune. They're more spiritually sensitive than we are as men. That's just a fact. But in that lies also the problem. Paul says... God says, I don't want to say Paul, get him in trouble, you know. But God says that the women are the weaker vessel. And the word doesn't mean weak in terms of strength, but it means vulnerable. And it's a very real thing that happens is that because of the way a woman is made, because of her sensitivity and her tenderness, is that they are more apt to stray into the spiritual margins. That's what happened to Eve. Oh, well, this is a spiritual thing. Oh, if I, if I get into this area that God forbids, it'll actually enhance my worship of God. And it says that she was deceived, that she believed the lie, but it says that Adam sinned. In other words, Adam knew exactly what he was doing. He was making a conscious decision to follow the footsteps of his wife, but she was deceived. And it's for that reason that Paul says it is not in God's plan for a woman to hold that position. It isn't chauvinistic. It's just the way that God set it forth. It doesn't mean that women are less. They're not weaker. It's just God's design. You know. And then notice in verse 15, he says, did you notice I'm sweating? I started sweating. You know, it really did get hotter in here. He says, notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Now, Paul's not making this any easier. What? 
She'll be saved in child. You just said, what, what? Listen, the word saved does not mean saved from her sins, you know, redeemed from hell and will go to heaven. That's not what, there, there's no other place in scripture that you can make that fit in the whole gospel plan. That's not, how, that's not what Paul means. The word saved there, what it means is made whole or completed. So he says that she will be made whole or completed in childbearing if they continue in faith in the Lord and love from the Lord and holiness with sobriety. That that is where a woman will find her greatest satisfaction is in the gift that he has given her to raise her children to be a mother. That that's where she'll find her ultimate fulfillment and her satisfaction. And that's the heart of God. What he's saying, women, he's saying, listen, you're not going to find it in ministry, but you will find it in mothering. Now, I understand, and we we close, we're not going to move into chapter three tonight, but I understand that there's a great many women, even here in this church, that you say, yeah, you know, that, that is my heart's desire. That's what I want more than anything else to be a mother. But for some reason, God has had other plans. And no matter how hard we try or what we give ourselves to or how, you know, much we pray, it just seems that the womb is not open. It's not, it's not happening. It's not working for us. And, and I know that that can be a terrible sting in a woman's heart to be in that position. I know that there are women, men in this church that they say, man, I just... I want to be married. I just have this this burning desire to be completed, to have a spouse. There's other people in the church that they have other things that they say, man, you know, I I love the Lord. I know I'm saved. I, I, I know I'm going to heaven, but there's just this issue in my life. It just seems like, I know that God will do this. I know that he could do this, fix this, or whatever the case is. But for some reason, he just isn't. He's not. What's the deal? What's going on? Why is he doing this? And that's a big question that looms over all of us, isn't it? Is that why is it that sometimes something that can seem like it would be so good and so holy and such the will of God, and yet for some reason it doesn't happen in our lives, What's the deal with that? Why does it happen? Last night, I was sitting with my kids, and we were just talking about following Jesus, what it means to follow Jesus. You know, we see this exhortation, you know, in the Bible. It's interesting. Think of this for one moment, is that here's Jesus. He's, he's in Galilee. He is starting his earthly ministry, and he's just living his life. He hasn't called anyone to be his disciple yet. He's just, he's just Jesus. As far as anyone knows, he's just the carpenter from, from Nazareth, from Galilee. But yet there was something about him that was so altogether different from anything anyone had ever seen before in anyone else. I mean, every personality that exists was, was there in that day. There was the charismatic people. There was the bubbly people. There was the wise people, the smart people, the cocky people. You know, there was all these different types of people, just like there is today. But yet, when they saw Jesus, there was something about him that was so much greater than just a personality. It wasn't that he was some kind of a politician or a political figure, but, but it was something there where that when he would look and he would see Peter and Andrew in the boat, and he would say, hey, come follow me. 
It says immediately they left their nets and they went and they followed Jesus. He went to John and James, the two sons of Zebedee, and he said, hey, come and follow me. And it says immediately they left their nets, they left their father in the boat, and they went and followed him. Now think of that. Who would do that? Maybe a child would do that, but, but a grown man who's established and has a business and responsibilities, who would just leave everything and go follow someone? Matthew was a tax collector. He was hardened by the abuse and hatred of citizenship, and yet here's Jesus, this man, and he says, come and follow me. And it says that Matthew left everything, and he got up and he followed Jesus. What was it that they saw in Jesus that they were willing to just give up everything and just go and follow him. I believe that it wasn't something that they thought he was calling them unto. In other words, he wasn't saying to them, come and follow me because I have something I want you to do. But rather, they understood, they knew, that the reason he was calling them was because of something he wanted to do for them. He was calling them to possess the same life, the same light, the same tranquility, the same stability, the same expression of what he was he wanted to give to them. That was his intent. And so he said, follow me. And tonight Jesus Christ looks over this congregation. And he looks at each one of us and he says, follow me. Not because of what he wants us to do for him but because of something that he wants to do for us. And listen, it has nothing to do with mothering or pastoring or parenting or marrying. It has nothing to do with any of those things. It's a life that he wants to give to us, something that he wants to impart to us that will change us at the very core of who we are and cause us to become an expression of what life really is and what it meant to be. But he says, follow me. You say, How do we follow Jesus? Are we supposed to leave the nets, the boat, the pen? How do we follow Jesus? He's told us. He said this. Listen carefully and we close. The musicians can come. He said, if any man will come after me, let him first of all deny himself. So the first thing it means to follow Jesus is to deny yourself. To no longer live with you as numero uno in your attention and in your affections. He said, deny yourself. Now listen, here it is, number two. He said, and take up the cross daily and follow me. What did the cross represent for Jesus? It represented that looming point of suffering that was laid before him to embrace something that he didn't necessarily like, but that it was the will of God for him to embrace. And so for you and I to follow Christ in taking up our cross daily, what it means is to embrace the things in your life that you would never have chosen for yourself and that you necessarily don't like. Maybe you hate them. But you'll submit it to the will of God and embrace those things and say, Lord, you know what's best for me. And here's what happens when you do that. When you follow Jesus, you become like Jesus you begin to possess the same quality of life. You begin to shine forth the same kind of light. You begin to experience the same kind of tranquility and peace that he had. And he uses those circumstances, those things that are a a thorn in our flesh, 
those things that are a contention, those things that we hate, those things that we want gone from us, he uses those things that in the embracing of them, we might begin to experience his presence, his power, his passion, his light, his peace. That's his will, his desire for us. It's what he wants to do. And so Paul gives us this chapter on Christian disciplines. And he tells us, pray. Why? So that we can lead godly and peaceable lives in sincerity and love. And then he tells us to give ourselves wholly to the will of God that we might come into a completeness of all that he has for our lives and what he wants to do in our lives. Amen? Let's stand together. Next week, we'll look at chapter 3, the church and its directors. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We pray that you would help us to know you in a more real and intimate way. We pray that you would perfect those things which concern us. That you would help us to lift our hands and our hearts and surrender to you. You truly are concerned. You truly do care about what's going on in our lives. I pray for each person here that tonight, whatever it is that's on their heart, that's troubling them, that they would lift it before you even right now. That you would give confirmation and settling peace in their heart concerning those areas of their lives. And that you would show yourself strong in their behalf. We thank you for this word tonight. Lord, something so hard for us to look through and understand, but yet we believe your eternal truth. We rest upon your testimonies, O Lord. May we follow you ever closer. In Jesus' name.